Hey there, and thank you for joining me for this episode of Impact, the Conservation Photography Podcast. And today, we're sitting down with Dudley Edmondson. Dudley is a photographer, an author, a filmmaker, a presenter. Over the last three decades of his career, he has done so much as a creator and also as simply a motivator. He's written the book Black and Brown Faces in America's Wild Places, which is a really incredible book highlighting outdoor role models for the African-American community. He's photographed dozens and dozens of field guides. He has spoken all over the place uh, in front of audiences around the world. And it's just a really incredible human being to, to talk to. And so I'm very excited about this interview. And in this conversation, we touch on all kinds of things from how Dudley really got started in a career as a wildlife photographer to diversity inside the conservation movement to how the conservation movement is even funded. There's so much interesting stuff inside of this interview, and I just love the energy that Dudley brings to this conversation and everything that he does. So I know that you are going to enjoy this interview with Dudley Edmondson. Let's dive in. Welcome to Impact, the conservation photography podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Heinbeck. And if you are a visual storyteller with a love for all things wild, then you're in the right place. From conservation to creativity, from business to marketing, and everything in between, this podcast is for you, the conservation visual storyteller who is ready to make an impact. Let's dive in. Welcome to this episode of Impact, the Conservation Photography Podcast. And I am so excited to sit down with you today, Dudley, and talk about conservation photography and wild spaces and all kinds of great stuff. So thank you so much for sitting down with us today. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. Appreciate it. Absolutely. So I always ask my guests before we jump into everything, all of the questions that I have lined up for you is... For anyone who's never met you before, isn't familiar with your work, who is Dudley out in the world? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Somewhat hard to answer, but I would say probably a guy who is forever tethered to nature and the natural world. And there's never a time when it's not on my mind and part of who I am, whether I'm having coffee at an outdoor cafe or sitting in my backyard or fly fishing, I'm always engaged in nature, even sitting here in my office. I mean, my, my windows are open, so I'm listening for migratory birds. Every once in a while, I'll take a break and walk through my garden looking for new butterflies I haven't seen for the year or different pollinators. And so I would say I'm a guy who's just ever connected to nature. So what a beautiful answer. I love that. So many people kind of give their professional rundown of something. Mm -hmm. And you're like, the, the core of who I am is someone who's always just connected, aware of, engaged in nature. That's fantastic. Yeah, that's me. It's funny. Yesterday, a student of mine posted in our student group that she is now going to be editing a column in her local newspaper, and she wants it to be really focused on conservation, like what can we do? Easy things in daily life that anyone who might not be super green-minded can get involved in. And 
she's like, so what is it that when you get down in like the pit of despair, which happens for all of us in conservation, like what are some of the things that you do in, in life that's kind of a green thing that gets you out of that? And I thought about it and I thought the, the things that I do in life in order to try and have a green life really revolve around shopping because it's, it's how you vote with your dollars. But the thing that gets me out of the pit of despair is reconnecting with nature. So I started thinking about all the things that we could do in daily life that reconnect us to nature and make us feel like we have some hope and some purpose behind things like using reusable shopping bags or better laundry detergent and so on. And you just mentioned so many things that you do, keeping your windows open to listen for those bird songs or taking breaks from work to go look for pollinators. What are some of the other things that you do just when you're immersed in your workday to make sure that you're not only immersed in nature, but that you're like aware of, of nature? Just really just, I mean, I have the privilege of working mostly from home, but when I'm not, I'm traveling along the road, flying someplace to, to give a talk or do a video production project or something like that. Like before, before we got on the line here, I mean, I was, went for a gravel bike ride on a trail at a park here about a mile from my house. And, and as I was riding along the shore of Lake Superior, I'm, I'm, I was thinking to myself, literally how lucky I am to live here. And so I'm just moving through stuff through the woods and there's very few people around and not that that's a good or bad thing, but it just gives you a chance to really make that connection. But I don't know if I, if I've answered your question, but I mean, it's just, I just feel like getting outside just makes me feel better mentally. So there's really never, in my opinion, a bad time to, to get outside and listen to cedar wax wings or chickadees or something like that. I mean, I just can't really think of a, a bad reason to engage nature. Yeah. So a lot of us as adults spend some time remembering how important nature is and reconnecting with nature, but it feels like this has just been part of who you are forever. Is that true that you've always had that connection or what was your journey into being this aware of your connection to nature? Well, I mean, certainly ever since I was a, a, a kid, I've been connected to nature as a small child uh, living in, at home in Columbus, Ohio, my parents quarreled a lot. And I found that getting out of the house, going out into the backyard and, and engaging nature, or a lot of times we'd go on family picnics to a place called Hoover Reservoir. And I found that if I'm putzing around in the woods as a little boy around the picnic area, I just felt better mentally. And I've just carried that throughout my entire life. Uh, I think people don't fully understand the power of connecting to the natural world and how it can help you mentally feel so much better. Uh, and so it's, it's certainly been something I've been, been a part of my life since I was probably 10 years old or so. And that's a long time ago. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, and you do so much work. I'd, I'd love to like transition into the work that you do because you do so much work that helps other people build that connection up and feel comfortable and feel like the wilderness is a place that everyone is welcome in. 
when did that side of your work start to appear? When did you realize like, hey, this is what I want to do with my time on earth? Probably in the early 2000s when I started working on my book, Black and Brown Faces in America's Wild Places. It, um, I had been working as a professional nature photographer for a number of years at that point. And I found oftentimes that I was the only person of color or only black person when all the places I went, the rim of the Grand Canyon, all the parks and things that I were, was visiting. And, and I just realized that, hey, I need to create a set of outdoor role models for, at that time, for African-Americans so that they can see people who look like them are in the out of doors. And so I started searching for those people. I found them in the park service or in other government jobs, as well as scientists and everyday people, conservationists, and just sort of created this, this large group of, of people who I felt that readers could connect to because they either reminded them of someone in their family or perhaps a friend or something like that. And so I was very specific in, in trying to really have a, a broad spectrum approach where there was older people, younger people, people just starting their careers, people near the ends of their careers, and just trying to have that diversity that I thought would help to engage a, a larger group of people. And so that was really the beginning because, again, I understood the power nature had for me healing. And so I felt like if, if other people, particularly again, at that time, African-Americans who, you know, we have higher levels of stress, people of color in general, but African-Americans certainly have higher levels of stress than, than, than white people in America, just because of systemic racism and the way our country has operated for centuries. And so. I felt like giving uh, African-Americans this sort of tool in the form of connecting to nature and reading about people who are connected to nature could help sort of reduce some stress levels as well as encouraging them to get outside and, and, and be more a part of nature. So, mm -hmm. And you wrote Black and Brown Faces in America's Wild Places in 2006. Is that right? Yep. What has been that journey since creating that book? Has it had the effect that you hoped that it would have? And what has it been like simply promoting the book and meeting the people who are reading it and traveling around with this concept and introducing people to it? I mean, it's been slow, but I think it certainly is having the effect. I mean, it's been, what, 15 or so years or so since I wrote it. and. It's certainly, it's actually having a, a sort of a resurgence. I mean, I've been selling books fairly steadily this year because I feel like in some ways America has finally caught up. I think in around 2020, America has, has finally sort of caught up with that idea. Um, and there are certainly more African-Americans in the outdoors today than certainly when I wrote the book. And I think Every day, there seems to be more and more people engaged. And so it's been, it's been interesting, fascinating, particularly running across, to, like if I give a, gave a talk, running across 
people will come up to me afterwards and say, you know, I thought I was the only black person who enjoyed nature. And you shown me that, that I'm not. And I, and I appreciate that, that I don't feel alone now in my efforts and, and my connection to, to nature. And that's happened more than, more than a couple of times over the years. And so, and I've heard stories, people say that the book has inspired them to, to get out and take their family into the outer doors and things. And so it's kind of, that was the whole point of it. And every once in a while, I get some feedback that indicates that the book is having, having the impact that I hoped it would. So. That is amazing. Like, I want to really emphasize how huge an accomplishment that is because we work in conservation. Like, we have this passion for conservation. And so much of that revolves around making sure that people feel connected, feel welcome, feel like they are excited to learn about the places that are around them and want to protect the places that are around them. So, to help people have that reconnection and then have that trickle into their family. They want to bring their family out and get their kids really excited about it. Like this is what builds that compound effect in conservation. And so all of the work that you do in, in your conservation efforts beyond simply this book and the work that you've done behind the book, I feel like it just magnifies it. So I'm so happy that you're seeing responses like that and hearing back from people. And I'm curious about because you mentioned that as you were a wildlife photographer, professional wildlife photographer, that was sort of the impetus to write the book is because you weren't seeing very many people like yourself out in photography. And I'm curious to get into that journey a little bit more, just simply, how did you become a wildlife photographer? How did that fall into your lap or how did you pursue that? I mean, I had some sort of career goals coming out of high school again, too far back to remember or talk about, but I, I, one time I thought I wanted to be a game warden or a wildlife biologist and doing field work. And I had all these ideas of, of career paths that I wanted. And I just started two things. I'm, I'm, I kind of hate math. And I figured that at some point as a scientist, it would, it would crop up. And, and it's like, yeah, well, that's, that's terrible. And then I thought also that potentially at some point I would get stuck behind a desk and I didn't want that. And there's also a certain amount of, of creativity I wanted to maintain and, and sort of independence that I wanted to maintain in my, in my career. And so I decided being a nature photographer was the best way to still be able to connect with nature and learn about the environment, but also being artistic and creative in, in the work that I did and, and do. And I mean, I'm still photographing. I had a great run yesterday, photographing butterflies in my front yard, just with my iPhone, but it's just something that sort of happened because of the other sort of plan A was probably game worn and plan B was probably a wildlife biologist and and plan C was a nature photographer. And that's kind of the one that I, that I went with and have certainly enjoyed that path. I got started here in Minnesota working with an author named Stan Tequila, who writes very, well, he writes a ton of books now, 
And at the time, he was writing little pocket field guides to, at that time, just birds of, of each state in the union. And he wasn't a photographer, but a writer. And so he hired me and I started photographing his books for him. And then eventually I taught him nature photography. And the two of us would photograph his books. And he really is first night credit for really helping me get my career started in terms of he gave me a, a break and paid me well. We traveled and photographed at least 75 different books or so for birds and wildflowers and reptiles and amphibians and mammals and trees. I know I photographed at least all of those mm -hmm. uh, in their first editions, maybe second editions of those books. So what a cool way to get started yeah. to yeah. like know that one of your big goals is species diversity in an area because that's the whole goal of the publication. So I'm curious because photographing a really good field guide image mm -hmm. is really different from photographing something that is just an artistic vision or or the scene that's unfolding in front of you getting behaviors that sort of thing. So mm -hmm. did you have any sort of a challenge in trying to maybe toggle between the way that your mind was thinking when you knew that you were trying to photograph a really great field guide shot that very clearly shows markings and so on, or what were the traits that you were looking for? And then maybe something that your heart kind of compelled you to photograph for that creative side of you. I would say that for the, the images for publication, we were using fairly large lenses, 600, 400 millimeter lenses. And so you're, you're kind of filling the frame with the bird or mammal or something like that. But when I was being creative, a lot of times I would just, just use shorter lenses, wide angle lenses. I mean, and back then we were shooting film, which I can clearly remember making that transition to digital back in like 2000, 2001 or something like that. I think we had been to Alaska for about a, two to three weeks photographing nesting shorebirds on the tundra. And we came back and we all had hundreds of rolls of film that we had to pay to process. So, but yeah, I mean, I don't really feel like it was that difficult. What I've learned, I've taken so many photos over so many years, decades that it's really easy for me to apply my skill to whatever the subject is, whether it's insects or clouds or a, a still life of fruit or something. I mean, I've done commercial food stuff. I've done portraiture. I've done all kinds of things. And it's like, you just take the skill you have and apply it to the subject that you have. And so I've learned that over the years, it's super easy to just take that skill and apply it wherever I need to. I just have a signature style and I just apply it to it, to whatever subject I'm working with. So swapping around is, is pretty easy. When did you discover that signature style? Is that something that you worked toward in your photography or did you just notice that it appeared after time? Yeah, it's a, a good question. I think I, I kind of just noticed it. I mean, one thing that develops over time is that you can look at, somebody could drop a hundred images in front of you and you can pick out three in seconds that are worthy of moving beyond 
And that's just a skill you get from take, looking at so much th- over the years and seeing so many images back when we were using light tables and slide transparencies. I mean, I could throw my slides down and go that one, that one, and then sweep the rest in the garbage. And just in, I mean, just you know, because my brain knows what it wants, what it likes and what it doesn't like. And I can quickly just look and pick stuff out. So I really enjoyed judging photo contests for that reason, because it's, it's a fun challenge to say, oh, here's a thousand photos, pick your 10 favorite. And over the course of a few days, I can get there. So, but also seeing other people's work and encouraging other people that, you know, by saying, hey, this is a really great photo. You've got really good skills and vision and continue pursuing, pursuing your path. So I, I've enjoyed doing that. I've judged a, a number of, of competitions around the world and here in the United States. So it's, it's always fun. I'm curious because you mentioned that after time you kind of noticed your style in wildlife photography. What about that conservation mindset? Is that something that you brought into your nature photography or is that something that you noticed as well as you got into really photographing nature? Did it kind of pop up for you? What was that kind of journey like? I'm not really sure. I feel like I'm I'm always evolving and adapting and reevaluating, which I find to be very healthy. I've had some, some thoughts about conservation over the last year or two, and I really am not exactly sure that I agree with the way environmental nonprofits are doing everything. I really feel like they could do a much better job, particularly of working in urban spaces so that people can make a better connection to nature and people can realize that they can, humans can coexist with, with nature and the environment. And I feel like urban green spaces in some ways are far more endangered than wilderness spaces because they're surrounded by concrete and corporate America and their tiny little islands of greenery where some where animals live and people probably try to to visit those spaces but there isn't as great an effort to protect and preserve those spaces and i find that a lot of times uh state and federal believe that it's up to the city to to do that stuff and i say the city is part of it but I think the state and federal government could do a better job as mm-hmm. well. So. Well, this is an interesting area to go down. You're making me think of Dr. Chris Shell, who really works inside of urban ecosystems and animals that live in urban environments. And I've been listening to a couple of interviews with him, and he really doubles down on the idea that there is no wild versus not wild. Everything's wild to some degree or another. And there's wilderness inside of these urban spaces. And it's interesting to hear you talk about the idea of 
non-government organizations or government agencies thinking about, oh, when we talk conservation, we're talking about preserving wildness or preserving nature, preserving something that's outside of an urban area. But the fact is, if we can change that mindset for all of us, not just agencies, Mm -hmm. but like that mindset of there is wilderness everywhere and it Mm -hmm. is the way that we view it as, as wild and being part of that, it's almost like the idea of conservation would be so much easier in an urban area because we recognize the wild that's there. It's not a little, even even a park inside of an urban area isn't the only nature oasis. It's part of the spectrum that happens in an urban environment. I'm sorry, I won't get on a soapbox about it. Mm-hmm. What would be on your wish list about maybe some specific changes that you've had in mind about the way that we think about or approach conservation? Well, I, I think that conservation is way too white, way mm-hmm. too white. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it has to engage indigenous communities and give them the power of decision-making power. And, and just conservation needs to be more ethnically and culturally diverse. Because to be brutally honest when I think about it, the people who got us in this situation are white people. Indigenous people didn't trash the land. Enslaved Africans were too busy trying to stay alive to be trashing the environment. European settlers and white people destroyed our environment. And having them in a position where they're the primary and only decision makers, in my opinion, is a very bad idea. Um, And so, I mean, and I don't say that to personally insult you or anyone, but it's just my belief is that you can't have the people who destroyed the environment solely responsible for protecting and preserving the environment. There has to be more people of color involved in it because our perspectives are different. The way we look at, I mean, I know indigenous communities see zero separation between themselves and the environment. That nature, we are nature, nature is us. There isn't this conquer nature. I have to control it. I have to even manage, even wildlife management, that whole idea to me is a very strange idea because if something is wild, it shouldn't be managed. It's wild. Managing it makes it unwild, in my opinion. And so I feel like that's one of the main things that needs to happen, more more diversity. And then I just feel like there's, and I'm not sure how to clarify or quantify or whatever, but I feel like there's way too much money in conservation. Interesting. Um, millions and millions and billions of dollars. And look at where we are. We're still struggling, losing species, losing habitat. I feel like for the kind of dollars that sort of move around in, in conservation, there, there should be a lot more progress. And there isn't. And I just feel like it shouldn't cost that much money. Capitalism is the enemy of nature and the environment. It is not people. It is extraction, commodification. These are the things that make it difficult for us to protect the environment. And I I don't even think of myself really as a conservationist anymore. 
I think of myself more as an environmentalist because to me, conservation, in my mind, sounds like you clearly understand that your actions and the things you're doing are hurting the environment. And so what you're doing is you're trying to conserve this small amount of it and then commodify and extract and use the rest of it. And that just doesn't feel right to me, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So I think of myself more as an environmentalist looking at what is the best thing for nature and the environment and how do we bring people and nature back together where people understand that they have a role, they have a place in protecting nature and the environment in that really just environmental education to me is something that I think should be mandatory for every student on the planet, actually, to where you understand that the things you do have an impact on the environment. And again, I feel like urban green spaces are places where people can learn some of that kind of stuff. Yeah. I want to go back to the the money conversation because I can just feel biologists and small nonprofits coming out of the woodworks being like, I'm sorry, wait, what? There's there's much money in concert. Wait, too much money? Wait, I, I, I does not compute. So, but at the same time, your point is with as much money that is going into conservation, we should be seeing more progress. Mm -hmm. So tell me a little bit more your thoughts on that. If you were to have like let's say that you were given the royal scepter and you have control of all the money mm -hmm. how would you rearrange things what would you want to see differently done with funding in conservation or how would you change conservation funding well i feel like in some kind of way part of it comes from attaching a monetary value to land and to resources mm -hmm. and that is bad because then it brings it out of the natural world and into the man-made world and into capitalism. When you say this hundred acre forest and all of its timber is worth X dollars. And I feel like somehow we've gotten into this way of by attaching dollar amounts to water, to forest to land is is part of the problem and i'm not entirely sure how we disconnect the two but i feel like m m more money is how we got in money got us into this situation and if we fight this conservation environmental battle with more money i don't really think we're going to get to a a real solution. Capitalism, again, is the problem. And capitalism isn't going to get us out of this problem. I just don't see that happening. Mm -hmm. uh, and I don't know how we get around that, but to me, that's part of the problem. Is yeah. attacking dollar amounts to natural things that humans didn't make trees, humans didn't make water, humans didn't make soil. Nature made all of those things. So how can we attach dollar amounts to those things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. A friend of mine and I talk about this, like it pops up probably every couple of years that we we dive into this because 
it's it's interesting in the conservation sector it's like okay well how do we get people to care about what it is that we're trying to accomplish and care about preserving things and care about not being extractive with resources and so one of the strategies that a lot of conservation organizations have used is the idea of saying well if we can assign a value to this by keeping it and that's a higher value than extracting it, then we can we can basically frame it in a way that makes people understand because everybody talks money. And so if everybody understands the concept of money and we can say, hey, leaving sharks in this reef makes this area worth X millions of dollars because of ecotourism. And that is more than extracting the sharks, finning them and selling them on the market. And so, okay, we're going to talk, we're going to frame it in that way. Um, but on the other side of that, it basically takes away the concept that you want to do something because it's the right thing to do. And right. so take away the requirement of reminding people that we we aren't overfishing sharks out of these reefs because the right thing to do is to leave them there so that the ecosystem can be healthy. And so how do we frame these conversations in a way, because I can see both sides of the argument on on whether or not you assign dollar values or you don't. But it's interesting because if you want to bring back or strengthen the side of the argument that's like, we do it because it's the right thing to do, period. Like That's it, end of story. Then we do need to be able to pour all that work into environmental education, connecting people to nature from the very beginning so that it's like instilled in your heart and soul that it's the right thing to do and therefore it's okay. I believe that that is the sole reason to do conservation, to do environmental protection and preservation is because it's the right thing to do. End of story. Nothing else to talk about. Uh, because that human beings don't have enough reminders in their daily that their entire existence depends upon a healthy ecosystem, a healthy environment pollinators doing their thing, predators doing their thing, plants producing oxygen and sequestering carbon. People don't have enough daily reminders that those things are absolutely essential to their lives. And those are the reasons you do conservation. You don't do it because of dollars. You do it because your life depends on it. Oh my God, mic drop. That was so well said. Well, for anyone who's been very inspired by you in this interview and wants to check out more of your work, where can they go to see your photography to buy your books? My website for books is DudleyEdmondson.com, and my photography most likely will show up on my Instagram feed, which is just Dudley.Edmondson. I'll make sure it's linked in the show notes. Dudley, it's been a joy to talk with you. I love watching you just light up with the passion that you have for the planet whenever you really get into these conservation issues and the and these big picture topics that you care so deeply about. And it's been wonderful to hear your perspectives on the world. And I feel very, very grateful that you're doing the work that you're doing out there. Yeah, thanks for having me. I, I'll thoroughly enjoy talking to like-minded folks about some of these issues and also just having the opportunity to inspire people to be to be better stewards of the land and better better environmentalists. Wonderful. All right. Well, like I said, folks, the links are in the show notes. So wherever you're listening to this episode, simply scroll down to be able to go check out more of Dudley's work. And Dudley, thank you again so much for being part of this podcast. Yeah, thank you.